I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I have always loved this passage of scripture. It's long, but it's so rich with all the stuff that makes us human. The joys and possibilities of a birth, the ups and downs and twists and turns of a long life, the potential for delight and suffering and sacrifice, the experiences of waiting and longing and maybe even doubt, the stubborn persistence of hope and the power of surprise. It's, it's all there. I think I've pretty much run the gamut. But of course, being so full of all the good stuff makes this passage very hard to preach, at least for me, or at least for today, as I end my ministry here at St. James with a full heart and with a tremendous amount of gratitude. Got my tissues handy, but I'm gonna try to keep it together, I promise. I do wanna spend some time this morning on the scene in which we find ourselves here in Luke's gospel, at the temple in Jerusalem, there to follow the dictates of the law. These are words that are synonymous in my mind with tradition. But here, the temple and the law, they lead to vision, prophecy, revelation, and the promise that God not only makes new life, but makes all things new. In the Gospel of Luke, it seems all roads lead to the temple. It's where Luke's Gospel begins, when the priest Zechariah is struck dumb by an angel of the Lord in the sanctuary for doubting his elderly wife could conceive and bear a son. That son was John the Baptist. The temple is also where Luke's Gospel ends, when Jesus ascends to heaven and his disciples, full of joy, go at once to the temple so they might spend all their time praising God. The temple is also the cornerstone of Jesus's life. It is where he is presented as an infant. The temple is where Jesus's frantic parents found their missing boy teaching to the elders. The temple is where Jesus would begin his ministry on earth, reading from the scroll of the, of the prophet Isaiah and declaring that the ancient scriptures have today been fulfilled in your hearing. In Luke's gospel, all roads lead to the temple. This is not simply because Jesus and his family are devout Jews, though they are, but because the temple is where God's glory dwells. When King Solomon first consecrates the temple, the priests cannot even enter it because it is so full of the glory of the Lord. Throughout scripture, the intensity of God's presence in the temple is so strong that the people can barely breathe their faces shine, they are overcome by the force and power of God's glory, what Rowan Williams calls God's overwhelming radiance. And I think by grounding his gospel in the temple, by showing how Jesus's life revolves around it, Luke wants the connection plain. Jesus prepares for his ministry with us by spending time in his father's house. Jesus's life flows from God's glory and through him, divine light is suffused across the world. Where Jesus is, their glory is also. Now, if Luke's whole gospel begins and ends with the temple, this morning's story begins and ends with the law. Mary and Joseph go to the temple to fulfill the law and depart once they have done everything it requires. 
Devotion to God's commandments brings them there. And what do Mary and Joseph bring to the glory of God? An offering for their firstborn son. And even more specifically, it's a poor person's offering. Luke is quoting the 12th chapter of Leviticus that says, if the mother cannot afford a lamb, she may bring a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. It's always seemed significant to me that these laws about offerings had options. They have a sliding scale. God's demands are not meant to break us, but they are meant to shape us. This is a chance to remember that all we can bring is what we have and who we are. That who we are as we are is enough, enough for God's love and for God's holy purposes. Now, because the temple is a place of God's glory, because it's the place where we can and should bring ourselves as we are, it's a place where people like Simeon and Anna can be at home. Simeon is not only elderly, but so full of longing, of deep and almost overwhelming desire, you get the sense that the temple has been one of the only places he can bear to be as he waits for the fulfillment of God's promise. And Anna, Anna has been a widow almost her whole life. Widows at that time lived with extreme financial precarity. Would Anna be homeless if it were not for her welcome in the temple? We don't know. But what we do know is that her response to her life, a life that did not go the way it was supposed to, is to remain hopeful and remain faithful to God. Both of these people, Simeon and Anna, are incredible. Both of them possess a faith in God's faithfulness that I find comforting on my best days and seemingly impossible to measure up to on my worst ones. Both Simeon and Anna are gifted with a special kind of faithful vision. They can see what will be in the midst of what still is. They can see what will be in the midst of what still is. Their trust in God has made them sure that their heartaches, their needs, the present disorder and chaos of their world is not all that they can hope for, for themselves or their people. It's almost akin to a kind of discernment. In the arrival of this seemingly ordinary baby and his parents, both Simeon and Anna can see the arrival of God himself. They can see what will be in the midst of what still is. We need that sight and that vision, and I believe the way we get it is by our praise. Because Simeon and Anna, they perceive that God has answered their prayers. This is the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem. They are beholding God's salvation that will be offered freely to all. And Simeon and Anna see all that and rejoice as though it has all already come to pass. They rejoice as though it all has already happened. To both Simeon and Anna, in Jesus' birth, the very fact of his incarnation, God's promises have been fulfilled. Every other material circumstance of their own lives can remain the same. They have the assurance that they need. It's poignant that 
Luke wrote this story down after that temple had already been destroyed. And somehow his own faith in all that would still come to pass could not be shaken. I'm not saying that praising God will make us as wise as biblical prophets, though I wish it would. But I think praise unlocks something in us. It shifts our focus and helps us let go of what narrows our vision, what distracts us, the weeds that grow up and choke our faith. Praise helps us to set aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and share in the liberating and joyful love of God and our salvation in Jesus Christ. To see what will be in the midst of what still is and rejoice in it as though it has already come to pass. To cultivate that sight and faith, to cultivate that life of selfless praise is the challenge that I face as I say goodbye to you and embark on an exciting and challenging new chapter. It's the challenge facing the search committee and the vestry and the rector candidates. It's why we have been praying for them through this process, that they all can see a glimpse into the gifts that God has already prepared for this place. God has already prepared them. For us to cultivate that sight and that life of selfless praise would be a spiritual gift, not just to us, but to the world because that is what our faith is. It is a gift to the world. And more than that, it is a profound act of resistance in a world that says maybe our technologies can improve, but our society really can't. A world that believes that swords that pierce our souls do have the last word. To praise God is to see his presence already at work in the midst of our broken world and to resist the presence of evil. To praise God gives us strength for the journey and reminds us to rejoice that God's power is known to us through vulnerability and humility. We rejoice in that. That his love for us is felt in pain and loss and that our hope and joy still spring eternal. Praise is our sacred resistance. Simeon's song, Anna's evangelism, the hymns we sing, all of them shout out God's dream in Jesus Christ and proclaim our loyalty to a king whose rule chooses compassion and inclusion over the hatred and exclusion and cruelty of the world our humanity has made. Our king chooses compassion. We praise to affirm our belief that the world can change and must change, and in Jesus' resurrection, the hardest battle in that change has been won. Christ has defeated death, and what's left now is for us to learn to love God and to love one another as much as God loves us. And I am so grateful for every single Sunday that we have spent together because we have rejoiced and praised God together as though all of these miracles have already come to pass. We've come here together to be in the presence of the new Jerusalem. We need to see what will be in the midst of what still is and to never lose heart. As the old prayer says, for life is eternal and love is immortal and even death is only a horizon and a horizon is nothing save the limit of our sight. Amen. Amen.